0: Our Bible reading tonight is Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 36. That's on page 836, or in the Chinese Bibles, it's 1668. That's Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect payment, what credit is that to you? even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full but love your enemies do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked be merciful just as your father is merciful
1: Thank you Yvonne, Uh, friends, great to be with you. Uh, You know, just in the drinks break before, uh, I said hi to one of the girls from William Clark. She said, hello sir. I want to say I quite liked it, so um, (laughs) I'll leave that with you. But uh, uh, Luke 6 is where we're up to. Uh, Next sermon in our series called Follow Me, great passage, please have that open. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for your kindness to us, thanks for this chance for us to gather, thanks for the room. Being full tonight, will you give us soft hearts and quick minds and a longing to be made more like your son for Jesus' sake. We pray this in his name. Amen. You know, there's a uh, very popular stream of individualism which says that you are the most important person in the world. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this. Uh, What goes along with this is a branch of the self-esteem movement which says, look, Don't worry what other people think about you. Believe in yourself. The only thing that counts is what you think of yourself. It actually doesn't matter what other people think about you. Have you heard this? I'm sure you have. So it's very popular. The American author um, Roy Bennett says this. Believe in yourself. You are braver than you think, more talented than you know, and capable of more than you imagine. Even the late, great Bob Marley said something similar. He said this. They will always tell you that you can't do what you want to do, but you can do what you want to do. You just have to believe in yourself. The system is to bring you down, but you can rise up. The point of this is you don't worry about others. It doesn't matter what they think. Just believe in yourself. To which I say... Give it a go. Just try that and see how it works for you. Just try going to work tomorrow where everyone thinks you're an idiot, but you think you're amazing. See how that works. See how you go in your soccer team where everyone thinks you're hopeless, but you think you're Ronaldo. See how you go in the church band where everyone knows you're tone deaf, but you think you're Bob Marley. See how it works for you. You see, it actually doesn't work. When you try to find your identity outside of relationship with others, it doesn't work. Relationships are key. We're wired for them. That's how God's made us, they are the most important things to us. Community, the network of relationships that we are in, really matters. Now I start by raising this tonight because that is what the section we've just heard read in Luke 6 is all about. Jesus is speaking about a new community, specifically life as God's people. Christian community, of what it is to be brought into Christian community, of how a Christian community is so radically different to any type of community that we will meet around us, in our world, in our suburb. So tonight, we're going to see three things. Firstly, verses 12 to 19 is about the promise of community. 20 to 34 describes to us the parts of community. And 35 to 36 will show us where we can find the power for this kind of Christian community. You know, one of the remarkable ways that God has put his Bible together is that sometimes we read a story in the New Testament that has very similar marks to another story we've read somewhere else in the Old Testament. And what happens is you'll be reading the New Testament and you think, oh, hang on, I've read a story like this somewhere before. What we're meant to do is ask, is God showing us something here in the New Testament that's already happened once before in the Old? It's actually a narrative technique that authors of the New Testament use now and then. That's what's going on in the first section here today. So in today's story, we read about a man, Jesus, who is up on a mountain communicating with God, he comes down from the mountain and speaks the word of God to the 12 men who he has designated to be his disciples. Does that ring any bells? Where have we heard something like that before? Well, in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, we read about a man, Moses, who is up on a mountain communicating with God. He then comes down from the mountain. He then speaks the words of God to the 12 men tribes of Israel. Now what further makes this link I think is that in Exodus the context is Moses comes down and brings the Ten Commandments. Here in Luke just before we read this little story Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about the right way to understand the Ten Commandments specifically the law around the Sabbath. That's verses 1 to 11 of chapter 6. So what's going on here? Well To answer that, we need to understand what's going on just briefly in Exodus. Exodus 20 uh, and what follows, Moses is communicating to God's people the law of God. Now, one of the key roles of the Old Testament law was to shape God's people into a new community. As God's people obeyed God's laws, they would learn God's mind on different aspects of life and they'd be drawn together in solidarity by that. So the law in the Old Testament marked out for Israel boundaries within which they learned how to worship, how to marry, how to work, how to farm, how to behave as a community. The laws showed Israel who their God was and what their God was like, what their God valued. And as they learned and loved and obeyed God's law, they'd become unified as God's people and the community would be shaped after their God. I think we're seeing exactly the same thing going on in Luke chapter 6. Jesus is speaking to people about what life will be like in his new community. He is giving a shape to what life will be like when people come to belong to him, when people are unified with him and then with each other. A new people shaped after god himself and as jesus speaks to this group at the bottom of the mountain what he's doing he's starting to chart out a new way of life for a new community of people well that's the promise of community that's the first couple of verses the next section 20 to 34 the parts of community is probably the most well-known section of the bible by those who don't know the bible well Okay, so Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Sermon on the Plain as it's called here in Luke, is probably the best known section of the Bible by those who don't know the Bible well at all. And it has captivated people of all religious persuasions for centuries because there's something just so countercultural about what Jesus says here that it grabs people, it resonates with them. So, for example, the President of the United States in 1945, after the Second World War, uh, Harry Truman, said this, I doubt if there is any problem in the world today, social, political, or economic, that would not find a happy solution if approached in the spirit of the Sermon of the Mount. The spirit. Note that, because often when people start talking about this, that's what they want to pick up, the spirit of the text. Well, what does Jesus mean when he speaks in the Sermon of the Mount? What Jesus does in this section is he starts to spell out two parts of the community that he's come to create. Firstly, he shows the values that people inside his community will have. That's verses 20 to 26. Secondly, he shows the relationships his people will have with those outside the community, 27 to 34. Okay, So two things, values of the people inside the community and then relationships with people beyond the community. Now, when it comes to the values of the people within the community, Jesus actually gives two sets of differing values here. The values of the people inside his community or those who belong to his kingdom compared to the values of those who live outside his community and who live outside his kingdom. And what Jesus starts to explain here is that when you belong to him, life starts to look really different. I want you to imagine for a second that you work for the NAB. NAB. And I want you to imagine that there's a royal commission into all the banks. And I want you to imagine that the previous CEO of the NAB was strongly criticized. And so a new CEO is called in. And there would have been a very particular culture, tone, rhythm, shape to life in the bank under the old CEO, which with a new CEO would change. A a new vision, a new direction, a new culture, a new ethic. At first, some things might seem ridiculous. We've never done things like that around here. And so on. And Jesus here is coming to say, I'm coming to bring my new culture, my new values, my new ethic of my new kingdom. And so Jesus sets them out as two opposing values. Uh, In verses 20 to 22, Jesus speaks of the values of his kingdom. Have a look at these. You'll know them. Blessed are you who are poor. That speaks of weakness. Blessed are you who hunger now. Speaks of longing. Blessed are you who weep now. Speaks of grief. Blessed are you when men hate you. Speaks of exclusion. What are the values of Jesus' kingdom? Weakness. Longing. Grief exclusion and then jesus lines up the values of his kingdom and contrasts them with four opposite values the values of the kingdom of the world you can see that in verse 24 where he speaks of the values of the world here he's speaking about the things that the world prizes more than anything else he says but woe to you who are rich that speaks of power woe to you who are well fed now speaks of comfort Woe to you who laugh now, speaks of pleasure. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That speaks of recognition and having a good name. Power, comfort, pleasure, and recognition. And Jesus says to his 12 disciples and the rest listening, Welcome to my kingdom. See the things I value. The world's going to offer you power, comfort, pleasure, and recognition. But come to me... Join my kingdom and come to know weakness and longing and grief and exclusion. Who's with me? You can imagine the crowds that are thinking, Oh, I'm not sure I am. Give me the second list any day. Friends, the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, is a very difficult part of the Bible to understand, which is why it's been taught so poorly, both outside the church. And also within. But I do need to say that the following quote I'm going to put up on the screen really helped me understand how to read this well. I hope it's a help for you as well. It's from one of the commentaries I was looking at. In the life of God's people will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. They will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks is desirable. Values which are taken for granted by other people are questioned by God's people and are considered in the searching light of spiritual truth, hidden reality, and a future life. I just found this so helpful uh, for how I, and perhaps maybe it is for you, how we are to read these blessings and woes because I don't think Jesus is saying, refuse power, refuse comfort, refuse pleasure, refuse recognition. But I do think he's saying, suspect them. Suspect them for what they are and suspect them for what they promise. And I don't think Jesus is saying, seek after weakness, chase down longing, run after grief and hold on to exclusion. But rather, prize them. For they are gifts that God will use to draw us to him. To make us more like him. And these things give us a new clarity, I think, about what it's, what's really important in God's kingdom. And here's the thing. When we take up this reversal of values, life takes on a completely different character. I want you to imagine two people for a moment. Uh, both highly paid, highly respected, highly qualified. And both people lose their jobs, never to find a commensurate one again. So the person who belongs to the world's kingdom, the man who values power and comfort and happiness and reputation is devastated. He's crushed. He has no other significance. He has no other security. His world collapses and he with it. For the things he has trusted to make him secure disappear like a mist. And Jesus says, woe to that man. But the other person belongs to God's kingdom. He has very different values. He is not controlled or dictated by the world's values in the same way. And he also loses his job. And he weeps. But that is a terrible thing to happen to anyone and people here know that. There is weeping, there is weakness, there is grief. But Jesus says, as you weep, you will be blessed. Jesus doesn't say, look, weep now and blessing will come when you find your new job down the track. He's saying, no, 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 as you weep, blessing will come to you. Which shows us, brothers and sisters, that in Jesus' kingdom, there is a blessing that is impervious to circumstance. You know, I've been here a long time now. It feels like a long time, nearly 10 years. And I've had the privilege to walk with families here through wonderful times and devastating and many of us know devastating times and if you don't you will and as I've walked with people who have gone through just awful things things that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy I've seen them grow slowly but grow in the sense that they wouldn't actually give them up for anything. Those things that they'd been through. Because people, these people, have come to know that God has held them tight and walked through them and drew them deeper to him through those challenges, awful as they were, than anything else in their life. I just see it again and again and again. Jesus said, blessed is that person. And Jesus isn't saying here, look, seek these things out. But he is saying, prize them. When they come, prize them. For you are blessed and you will know my blessing then when every earthly prop gives way more than at any other time. And friends, these things make us wiser. They free us from the terrible slavery that the world's values of power and comfort and happiness and reputation almost always bring with them, almost always. And one of the things that actually draws us together as a community here at Chapel Lane, a community of God's people, is that we have a common freedom of not finding meaning and significance in the world's values, but rather in Jesus's. It's a great challenge. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Um, He doesn't just show us the values of the people inside the community. I said he does a second thing. He also shows us how his people are to relate to those beyond our community. That is, people who don't know Jesus uh, like you might. How is it that we're to relate uh, to those in our workplaces, perhaps those in our families who don't love Jesus like you do? And I want to say that what Jesus says here is as difficult as it is stunning. I want you for a moment to draw to mind someone you hate. Oh, it's a bit strong. We don't hate anyone. Dig deep. Dig deep. Someone you just detest. You're going to need that person in your mind for this next bit, okay? Now, here's the thing. What most of us do when we are wrong is one of two things. Either we say, I'm going to get you, or we say, I'm going to ignore you. There are two options both inherently selfish, all about us, what makes us feel comfortable, uh, linked to our personality, our background, our desire for conflict, or whether we're conflict-adverse, whatever it might be. So what we do, we either salve that desire for vengeance and chase someone down, or we run away, head in the sand, and say, this isn't for me. And Jesus shows us another way that is remarkable. Notice what Jesus does in verse 27. Have a look at that. He sharpens the point here, not just by speaking about those who disagree with you, that person who thought your speech at school was rubbish or whatever, but he's talking about those who actively oppose you, those who hate you, your enemies, those who would do you harm. How are those who live in God's kingdom, how are we to deal with people like that? Well, Jesus speaks of two responses, internal and external. Internal, verse 28, Jesus says, pray for them. Pray for them? I mean... I can ignore them, (laughs) but pray for them? What is it to pray for someone? Have you thought about that? What is it to pray for someone? I think to deeply and seriously pray for someone else is to desire their well-being. And when that's your enemy, I think what you need to do is drain yourself of ill will to see yourself as no better than that person. Now, draw to mind that person we talked about before, who you don't hate because we don't say that, but you do, right? Don't you see yourself as better than them? I've got a guy in mind. I'm better than him. Glad I'm not like that. Glad I don't do what he does. I think to pray for that person is to see them as needy and as fallen as I am. And this inner work that God wants for his people is to have this desire for the flourishing and the restoration of those who oppose us. Now, if that's not hard enough, that's the easy part. Okay, here's the hard part. Once we've done the inner work, we're able to do the outer work. Have a look at verse 27. We love them. We do them good. We bless them. So, firstly, we let the malice in our hearts drain away. We see them just like us. We bring them before God, and then when all that's left within us for them is a deep care for their souls, we go after them and bless them and do good to them and serve them. Remember, these aren't just people that you don't really talk to. These are people who want the worst for you. Now, how on earth is this possible? How on earth can anyone do this? This sounds... Impossible, doesn't it? Doesn't this sound like a classic case of religion espousing impossible ethical ideals, which we all sit here on a Sunday and nod and say, that's nice. But on a Monday, you know, there's no real point of contact with the real world. Certainly not when it comes to your mother-in-law, your boss, or that person at school. That's why people mis mis misteach this, because it's just impossible. You can't actually do what the Sermon on the Mount calls for. But of course, if it's in God's Word, it is possible. And I want to say that Jesus shows us how. You want to have a look? I'll show you this together. It's the power to have this sort of community amongst us. Have a look at the last two verses, 35 and 36. So Jesus says, But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be grace, and you'll be sons of the Most High, because He is kind, note this, to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Look what Jesus says here. He says, look how God treated you. This is how you once were. You were once ungrateful and wicked, and God treated you with mercy. But, Chaplain, here's the thing. You are still ungrateful and wicked. What? You can't say that. Come on, Jesus doesn't say that. Yes, he does. Maybe not here, but absolutely five chapters on in Luke 11. I'll put it on the screen. Jesus in Luke 11 is speaking to his disciples of all people about how to pray. Listen to what he says to them. If you then, disciples, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What? We're evil? Yes, that is what the Bible says. And here's the point. Jesus says, if you know you are evil, if you believe you are wicked, and yet at the same time, you know that Jesus loves you so much that he died on the cross to forgive you for all your wickedness, for all your evil, you will find the power to live this way. And that, brothers and sisters, is the key because no other world religion says this, no other philosophy of life says this, that you're both evil on one hand and beloved at the same time. Common sense says it's one or the other. Jesus says, no, you're both. And when that sinks in, it changes the way we view ourselves, it changes the way we view our enemies. Chaplain, how on earth can you feel superior to someone knowing you are evil? How could we ever see our relationship with Jesus as a badge for pride when we know we are ungrateful? How could we ever understand Jesus' relationship with us as anything but an extraordinary act of undeserved grace? How could you be anything ever but a humble person, totally reliant on Jesus' Jesus' death in your place and on your behalf? Well, where do we land this? Uh, It seems that the biggest mistake everyone makes with this passage from uh, those outside the church to those within is to lift the ethical instruction here and divorce it from the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's pretty much what Almost everyone's done throughout history with the Sermon on the Plain, Sermon on the Mount. And if that's what's happened throughout history, then brothers and sisters, surely we're at risk of doing the same. I've already had someone come and say to me today, that's where we went in our community group during the week. It's the risk for us all. So, at this point, I don't think it matters whether you're here tonight and you're a Christian, or whether you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Can I say, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, so good you're here. We love having people who are still wrestling with who Jesus is come in, sit under the Bible and wrestle with us and ask hard questions of us. We love it. But I don't think it matters whether you're a Christian here tonight or a non-Christian when it comes to uh, thinking about the application for this because I I think the risk is the same for all of us. And that is, here's the risk, we take the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount and we start to live them out and think that those ethics living this way will either make us a better Christian, and I hate that phrase because there's no such thing. If you don't know why, ask me. Or if you're not a Christian, you think it'll make me a better person or a good person or something like that. So if the risk is the same for us all, then the antidote is the same for us all. Chaplain, what we need to do is wrestle with Jesus himself. Who on earth is this bloke? Who on earth is this man who brings such a remarkable and attractive and a cultural, countercultural way to live? And did he put his money where his mouth was? Did he live like that? Did he follow it through? Because surely that's impossible. What on earth did he come to do? And it's only actually as we get Jesus right and central to our thinking, our wrestling, our living, that the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, starts to make sense to us in the way that Jesus wants it to. So my encouragement to us all this week is why not sit down, pick up Luke's gospel and start reading. It's the gospel we're working through this term. And as you're reading, maybe just a chapter a day, ask yourself this question. Who is this Jesus? And does he bring anything, anything at all that I deeply need? My brothers and sisters here at Chapel Lane... May we all know our poverty before the one who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Let us pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that Luke is so brilliantly constructed. And when we scratch the surface, we just see a profundity in what he says to us Father we thank you for this reminder that it is so easy to think that by doing good works we either get your affection keep your affection or somehow add to what you've already done for us Father will you forgive us will you help us see that actually all we need to do is know that we are poor blind and bankrupt and that we need a saviour to save us and a king to lead us and then father we might ask that the sermon on the mount might come alive for us as we live new lives with a new power knowing that we don't deserve a thing yet we've been given the kingdom and all for jesus sake amen